Do you love the pasty tapes? Do you want to keep this project sparkling? There's two ways you can show your support. Join the Pasty Tapes fan club and unlock special sneak peeks and fun goodies. You can also support by sponsoring a whole episode. To learn more about the Pasty Tapes fan club or sponsoring an episode, visit thepastytapes.com. Hello, ducklings! This is Blanche Debris, and you're listening to The Pasty Tapes, a burlesque podcast by Show My More, the steamiest Asian dumpling. Thank you for listening to this episode of The Pasty Tapes. I'm your host, Show My More, the steamiest Asian dumpling. Today's episode is pretty long, but it is totally worth it. It is full of insights from hearing about the burlesque revival to Dixie Evans and the Goat Ranch to, you know, mushy, lovey stuff like the meaning of friendship as a grown-up. There's so much to uncover. My guests today are among the best in burlesque. They are definitely my favorites. They are pioneers, headliners, true standard setters in our industry. They're also total BFFs. The first time that I saw the two of them, uh, I saw them run into each other at Beehoff, and I swear it was like watching two stars collide. It was full of love. It was warm. It was just something that I've always wanted to see and always like want to have as I get older, and it's, it's nice to know that it's possible. Okay, let's jump into it. My guests today are the incredible blonde bombshells. This is a conversation with my mother and my aunt. This is World Famous Bob and Dirty Martini. Dirty Martini, World Famous Bob, thank you so much for being on this episode of The Pasty Daves. Thank Hooray! you. Woo! Yay. Okay. Something that I love, Bob, as everyone knows who's listening, World Famous Bob is my burlesque mother, which makes Dirty Martini my aunt. And one of the things that I love that you said, Bob, when I was first adopted into the House of Famous was, you know, Dirty Martini is your aunt. And whenever you talk about Dirty, you're always like, you know, my best friend and your aunt, Dirty Martini. And so it's just always been reinforced in my head that the two of you are so like intertwined, BFFs, a burlesque dynamic duo. And so I want to know, what is your burlesque origin story as a pair how did you two meet well it's so funny because we kind of met separately (laughs) right bob yeah like i think our reputations probably preceded themselves (laughs) and for sure i had this roommate who was going out to a lot of gay bars and bob was uh performing at the cock at the time and it was to say it was a legendary party and that she is a legendary person is putting it very mildly because in New York, when you kind of hit, you hit big, like all the people talk about you. And I swear everybody was talking about Bob. And so I had to see this person when I saw her postcard and I, my roommate had her postcard on my refrigerator. And so I had to go to the cock and see the illegal disco dancing party, (laughs) which was illegal in New York city to dance at that time in the nineties. Right. Yeah. It was footloose era for sure. The cabaret laws were being reinforced during the Giuliani era as a way really to punish the gay institutions a straight bar right next door wouldn't get cited but the cock would repeatedly 
Yeah. And three or more people moving in a rhythmic fashion. If you didn't have a cabaret license and three or more people were moving in a rhythmic fashion in your establishment, you could get fined. And the roots of the law, I'm not super savvy on the exact details, but it's the 1920s. It was to prevent speakeasies. Yeah. But it was like dormant for a really long time. It was like on the books and nobody decided to overturn it until Giuliani came in and started crushing nightlife in New York City. So you hate him now because of Trump, but you really would have hated him back then. (laughs) Yeah. Dirty and I have hated him for a really long time. (laughs) We're old school Giuliani haters. What's up? Right. At the forefront of, you know, neo-burlesque and hating Giuliani. Totally. (laughs) Okay. So Dirty, you heard about Bob. Bob was literally on your fridge. I heard she was particularly because I was interested in burlesque. I just started performing kind of, you know, in odd ways like burlesque because I was, I was dancing mostly a contemporary dancer at the time. But then I started doing this burlesque project in a theater. And uh, I was like, oh, I heard that Bob had propellers like, you know, like you'd have a, a cap with the propeller on the on the head. I heard that she had two of those on her tits, and I had to see it for myself. <laughs> that and the illegal disco dancing. So I, I went there, and I was like, of course, astounded and so moved by her performance. Just It was such an incredible, groundbreaking, exciting thing to do and to disco dance. For like, what was it? A minute and a half? It was one minute. Yeah. A minute? It was a minute long. The minute long illegal disco dance. And I would, you know, do a tiny soapbox speech. And then a cute go-go boy would come out with a big sign that Mario Diaz had made. in like Frankie says, relax lettering that actually stated the cabaret law that we were breaking. So there was a visual. We showed the law. And then I was in some sort of distress, a bikini or topless, and I would just work the crowd. Tent revivals my style, right? And so I would um, work the crowd into, you know, uh, just basically just work the crowd into getting excited about breaking the law, which we've been a topless protest. And so I'd ask people, I'd be like, who's ready to break the law with me? You know, and we'd get really, really, really amped up. And then um, I would send it over to DJ Adam. And DJ Adam was the DJ at Foxy on Saturday Nights at the Cock. And he was so great. And he would play like Disco Inferno. It really was a minute long illegal disco dance. So people really got into it. And then 60 seconds. And I would do the anti-Giuliani wave before we started. So I'd point to one side of the room and the whole room would do the wave like they do at sporting <laughs> events. It was the anti-Giuliani wave. That was part of my crowd frenzying techniques was to use sports tropes against him in gay bars. And then we would just be dancing really hard for a minute. And then DJ Adam had directions, instructions to just stop the music hard. And it would just be like quiet. And it was kind of to show the ultimate vision that Giuliani had for us, you know? And so I did that every week. I led that every week. I have chills. That's, that's a lot. <laughs> it was a really difficult time in New York City for su- subcultures, you know, anything, doing anything, um, subcultures, gay culture, 
performance, art culture, drag culture, all of that. We were very united and it was a very hard time. And there was coalition for cultural freedom. So some of the downtown performance artists and legends like Mistress Formica, Mario Diaz, formed the coalitions for cultural freedom. And they were passing out flyers that had a picture, an illustration of St. Mark's Place, which dirty, you know, that's your stomping ground. And it was today and it had all different types of people, you know, sketches of all the different stores. And then you open the flyer and it said tomorrow. And it was just the Gap, McDonald's, everybody in suits with briefcases. And we would have fundraisers at Mother, this nightclub. So there was a real, you know, I remember being grateful and impressed that people like Mistress Formica were going to council uh, meetings, you know, city council meetings and speaking up for the community. And it was a war, basically. It was a cultural war. Bob, you were doing this like in a very like punk rock protest, right? Yeah. Like standing up for your people way and dirty. Like you heard about Bob, like through all of this. Um, Bob, do you remember the first time you met dirty or dirty? Did you, after you experienced this, did you go up to Bob? I did. You know how hard it is when you, you meet so many people in nightclubs, you know, and I came up to her and I was like, oh my God, that's amazing. <laughs> and she doesn't remember it. But later on, she called me and I was like, oh my God, Bob is calling me <laughs> because I, yeah. of her story, which she could tell. <laughs> I, I didn't know. I didn't know that Dirty had walked up to me at the cock. Um, so through the cock, I have the uh, the honor of create you know having somewhat of a homosexual following which is the highest compliment any woman swinging her tits around the world can have and some of my friends in LA had this club Brian Rabin and he was the person who booked me called Cherry and Kid and Deville go go danced at Cherry I believe it was a once in a month or at least once a weekend maybe I can't remember Cherry was a rock and roll gay nightclub similar to Squeezebox but bigger and a lot more you know just it was a little bit more mainstream I would say than Squeezebox in New York City so Lady Bunny had gone out there and was talking to Brian Rabin about this person in New York City that did topless aerobics while eating cheeseburgers in Six Inch Hills to ACDC. And Brian knew Brant, my friend. So long story short, they booked me to go out to LA to do my topless aerobics in Six Inch Hills while eating cheeseburgers to ACDC, which was the name of the act. And it's what I did. And <laughs> that's, pretty, that's pretty much what I did. So I went out there and the LA Weekly newspaper did a story on me, a really small story, but they included a picture, which I was really excited about. So I dressed up like a topless version of Angeline, who's one of my sheroes. And Michelle Carr was one of the co-producers of the Velvet Hammer Burlesque in Los Angeles. And she's flipping through, she's at a diner she worked at, and she's flipping through the newspaper and she sees me. She turns to her friend and says, who is this? And he said, oh, that's Bob. She's staying across the street at my friend Brant's house. LA is pretty big if you've been there you know that it's really big so so she got a hold of me and said we'd really love to have you in the you know in the Velvet Hammer we talked about my acts and she said oh we'd love to have you in the Velvet Hammer here in Los Angeles at the El Rey Theater and I was freaking out I, I hadn't done burlesque with any other burlesque people I'd only been doing it in gay bars and she said well you do the Vava Voom Room right and I was like what 
And so she said, well, you know, you know, Dirty Martini, right? And I was like, I've heard of her, but I don't know her. And Julie Alice Muse and Miss Astrid, I was like, no, no. And Michelle couldn't believe it, you know, because it's, I don't know. She just thought, she knew, she recognized that we were family is what it was. So I said, can I have all their phone numbers? And she gave me all of your phone numbers. I was so excited. I was so excited. And I had seen a poster like a year before that. I was dating this guy and we walked past a poster for a show called The Red Vixen in the East Village. And it didn't have any names of the performers because I did know Scotty the Blue Bunny from the clubs. And it didn't have his name. It didn't have any names. And it had just an illustration of a pinup, but it said burlesque. And my boyfriend at the time said, oh, they're doing burlesque. You should go meet them. And I just said, no, they're not going to like me. I'm too weird. And the people doing that show were Dirty and Julianne Tigger. And <laughs> Talk about but, weird. But I saw the ad and I didn't see myself, rep- you know, I thought, no, 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 no. You know, they're, uh, I'm going to be too fat. I'm going to be too weird. I'm going to be too queer. I, I, I didn't have the courage to go in. And I like to share that because I think a lot of people look at established performers and they think they've always had that level of confidence, which isn't you know, everybody's story is different, but it wasn't true for me. I was too scared to go. So when Michelle told me that these three people were really nice and what they were doing, I was really excited because I felt like it kind of greased the doorway for me. So I ran back to Brant's and I picked up the phone and I called Dirty. I was like, hi, my name's Bob. And, uh, I was wondering if we could be friends. (laughs) (laughs) Totally. And I was like, I saw, I was like, oh my God, World famous Bob is calling me. And she was really famous at that time in New York City. <laughs> like, oh, she is now too. But like at that time for me, I was like, you know, I idolized all the drag queens. And Bob was one of the drag queens that I idolized. <laughs> and I was like, oh my God, I can't believe she's calling me. And I was like, yeah, we can be friends. <laughs> it was exciting. So that's how we met for me, right? And then when I got off the phone with Dirty, I called Julie and I was like, hi, my name's Bob. I was wondering if we could be friends. And then we had some weird conversation. <laughs> I love Julie. And then I called Kate, Miss Astrid. And I said, hi, my name's Bob. And I was wondering if we could be friends. And I was wondering if I could do your show. I've never done a burlesque show, but I do burlesque. And she said, oh, I know who you are, but you do a lot of rock and roll stuff, right? Like ACDC stuff. And I said, absolutely. And the Va Va Boom Room was curated. And that time of ACDC wasn't really welcome in the show. There was kind of like a time period of music that she wanted to specifically have. And I said, well, I have this one act where I dress up like Marilyn Monroe and I mix a martini in my cleavage. And she said, you're booked. (laughs) I said, I only have one. I only have one that's not rock and roll. And I described it to her and she said, yeah, you're booked. And that's, that's how we really started hanging out, working together. That's a delicious story. That is so cute. I think like lots of people who listen to this will relate to it. I definitely relate to it in terms of like, oh, I've been a fan of you before we met, right? And then having that like built in like, oh, y'all should meet and be friends. And then it worked out, right? Bob, you placed the call dirty. You said, yes, I would love to be your friend. (laughs) What was like the early days of being friends like, working together like, you know, I guess like what was being part of the burlesque resurgence in New York City like? I want to share what it was like to work with Dirty. So I was in a paper magazine issue and they said, what are you? And I said, I'm a burlesque revivalist. So I didn't even know what burlesque was. And a gay guy walked up to me at the cock and said, I love your burlesque. 
So I went to the Tompkins Square Park Library in New York City and asked them for books. And so I started researching burlesque. And when I first started doing the Vava Boom Room, I remember watching Dirty on stage and just having chills all throughout my body. And because I always had this sadness that I couldn't time travel and feel like burlesque, what it was like in its heyday. But when I watched Dirty, I felt as if I were present in the heyday of burlesque. She completely recreated something I had never even been around for, yet it felt so familiar. And I just was really excited by how warm and generous Dirty is and was then too, you know, just, I was backstage, I was kind of nervous and I would just put the weirdest stuff on my nipples, you know, like propellers or like dollar store flowers, just like falling apart. And she noticed this. And I mean, immediately she like made me a really nice pair of pasties and was like, Hey, I made these for you. And there was just this sense dirty didn't, and she's still the same way. So dirty doesn't care about being like the most revered or the prettiest or the best in the room. She just is very generous in that way. She cares about doing, I feel like dirty, you care about doing your best, but it's not about beating other people. You know, it's about um, being in a room full of people doing their best. That's kind of the feeling I got. And it was just a thrill for me because I hadn't had a lot of close relationships with um, cisgendered women. And it just completely changed the definition of what that could look like for me. You know, I felt like I had really hit the jackpot and I still do feel that way. Well, friendship, I've just been thinking about friendship a lot because it's, it's a funny thing to be an adult and make friends when you're a kid or even in college where you're supposed to make friends or in high school or whatever, it's a different bag. But like, to me, adult friends is really difficult and important, you know? And so you lose sight sometimes, unless you've moved to a new place, of how important it is to have your, you know, kind of network of people. And also when you start to, as in the performance world, when you start to get into backstages with people you don't know so well, but they know each other really well, you start to realize like what kind of friendships are being made and, you know, you're more conscious of it. So especially in the backstage kind of atmosphere. So it's important for me to not, now that people know who I am, to not feel, make them feel like they have to approach me on tender hooks. It's my job to make them feel comfortable now that I'm more well-known than I used to be. That's also very true. I think like my experience with both of you backstage, you know, just fast forwarding a little bit like to today, right? Like dirty, like you've been always so kind and so accessible to me. Like even I think I can't believe like I'm saying this, but like in the, you know, year and a half that I've been doing burlesque, like you and I have done like four shows together now, which is wild. And Bob, like the first time I was backstage with you, the first time we met, which I think is a very embarrassing story because I was like, oh, I can't believe Bob is talking to me. And now it's like, yeah, I think like a common theme between the two of you and, you know, it's something that I see today and here in this story is kindness. I don't know. Is that, would you say that like just generally being kind and loving, like helped propel your friendship to where it is today? For sure. Yeah. 
I knew I could trust Dirty right away. I knew I felt I could trust Julie and Kate and, you know, I knew Tigger from the clubs vaguely, like, you know, it was the clubs. So (laughs) it's hard to pull out that Rolodex of memory sometimes, but I knew Scotty, the blue bunny. I I felt like I had arrived to my home when I found the Vava Boom Room. You know, that I love to use the analogy of that feeling when you're on a road trip and you fall asleep as a little kid and you barely hear like the crunch of gravel under the tires and the car slows down and you get carried to your bed half awake and nobody disturbs you. And that feeling of being home, that's how I felt when I got to that show. That's how I felt when I met these people. I had met my family and that's true to this day. Yeah, you meet people all the time. I mean, like I, I do, especially at shows. And, you know, I hate to be shady about it, but there are some people that you meet and you're like, oh, yes, I've just met that person, you know. And then there are some people you meet and you're like, oh, it's you. <laughs> yeah, I get you. <laughs> and it's so magical when that happens because there are just certain people that, you know, you just you feel like you've known him your whole life. And Bob's one of those people for me. Would you say it was like love at first sight? Of course. You know, I guess like once I remembered. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it was a long time ago. <laughs> I remember too. You're like, I met you before. And I said, uh, were you in a wig? And you said, no. And I said, oh, that's probably why I didn't remember. <laughs> <laughs> I totally can relate to that. <laughs> Kind of at the beginning, um, Bob, this is something that you've mentioned to me before. Like you two would get confused for each other a lot. We still do on the internet. It makes me so excited. Oh my gosh. I love it so much. When I go out, I get confused for Bob all the time. I love it. And then I know who was going out to nightclubs when by the, who they think I am. <laughs> the really old queens and dirties me when she goes out. <laughs> really young queens don't know who I am. Girl, <laughs> oh, Bob, who? Oh, Bob, the drag queen. Fierce. <laughs> I like two people call me when Bob the drag queen, um, you know, rose to mainstream fame, and they're like, "You were first. I'm like, "Everything's been done. Relax. <laughs> Nightlife is rough. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> were you two ever? competitive with each other or felt like you had to be? No. Hell no. No? I'm not competitive at all. So I'm not, I don't have a competitive streak in me at all. I've never felt competitive towards anyone in the burlesque community, to be honest. Yeah, everybody's so different, I feel like. Even though we were mistaken for each other, it's like, for me, I was like, oh, well, I mean, she's like a two feet taller than I am for one thing. <laughs> Her tits are bigger, but okay. I'm happy for the comparison. For it would sure. happen at the same shows, Shomai. So, so a group of girls came up to me after a Velvet Hammer in LA. Remember Dirty? And, or it was either Teaserama in LA or a Velvet Hammer. I can't remember. And they came up to me and they were freaking out, Shomai. They're like, oh my God, it's you, it's you, it's you. And they pulled out the program and they're like, can we ask for your autograph? And I was like, of course. Wow. Yeah, sure. And then as I pull out the Sharpie and I go to assign it, they're like, we love your balloon dance. <laughs> and I just stood there and put my pen away and I was like, dirty, I have some friends for you. <laughs> <laughs> she can do the splits. She, said. <laughs> she can do the splits. So I'm always 
really excited. I was so excited when people would think I was Gertie after a show we were both in because she's a better dancer than me. So I'd be really excited. I'd be like, she can do a lot of stuff I can't. Yay. But yeah, it was kind of funny. I mean, white ladies, naked, big butts, similar wigs, I guess. I don't know. But it was always a compliment, still is. Yeah, for sure. Something I want to ask the two of you about is your love and deep respect of burlesque legends. Like it sounds like both of you, when you were dipping your toe into burlesque or figuring out like what it was, did your homework, right? Like Bobby mentioned going to the library, dirty. Like you and I have talked about how you've done your research, you watched videos and looked up whatever you could. Um, and I think this shows in, you know, your deep love and respect for the legends and for preserving and honoring our history. Can you tell me about the first time y'all went to exotic world, discovering what that was? Give me your exotic world story. Dirty told me about Dixie. We went to the first teaserama ever in New Orleans. And that's where I met Dixie Evans for the first time. And Dirty had told me before that who Dixie was and about when you went out dirty and danced for Dixie, which I'll let you tell that story because it's so beautiful. So, well, first of all, when I first started performing burlesque, I really, one of my big dreams was to meet people who actually did burlesque in the day, in the golden age. And I thought, God, I mean, I live in New York City. There's millions of people here and lots of older people. There's bound to be somebody who remembers the burlesque, you know, and Sure enough, I would hear stories, you know, as I performed here and there about um, somebody's grandfather who went and saw Bubbles Darlene and they saw me perform and were like, oh my God, I can't wait to tell grandpa we saw somebody twirl tassels like Bubbles Darlene because it's a big family joke about tassels, you know, and (laughs) whatever. But, and I'd hear all these stories, but I never, ever got to meet anybody who actually danced the burlesque. And so when I heard about Dixie out in the desert, it was a dream to go and visit her. And I went with my friend at the time, who's now the um, on the board of the Burlesque Hall of Fame, whose name is Deborah Roth. She had a company called Pink Inc. that I was a part of. And uh, we happened to have a nearby gig. So she and my hairdresser and her hairdresser, Stacy, Jerry Stacy went out into the desert to meet her. And it was the winter, which for me being in New York, you know, was like mild, you know, so it was like springtime, <laughs> like weather, you know, and I was like, oh my God, it's, it's hot out. I'm going to wear my spaghetti strap dress. <laughs> so I put on a gown and I drove into the desert and those days there was no such thing as uh, map quest. So you'd have to call Dixie up. Map quest. There's no such thing as like Google Maps. There wasn't even like <laughs> GPS, like regularly, you know, for people to use. So uh, don't worry, I will pause and edit in for our much younger listeners what Map, map quest was <laughs> and what a printer is. <laughs> totally. So we had to write down the directions that Dixie told us over the phone, yeah. and then um, and then find our way to this weirdo spot in the middle of Hellendale, California, which is in the middle of nowhere outside between Vegas and LA, closer to LA and in California. And so 
as we were driving there, it's very windy and we had the window down because it was so beautiful and the directions actually flew out the window. So we had to <laughs> pull over because nobody had cell phones and call Dixie and ask her the directions again <laughs> to make sure we were on the right path to find Wild Road in the middle of the desert. And that's how I met Dixie Evans for the first time. And she showed us, we honked our horn three times outside of her house, which was the museum. And she came out in a cute little lavender pantsuit and she took us around and apologized that um, she didn't have her hair and makeup done because the film crew that, <laughs> from Europe had been there the night before and she was too tired to put on her hair and makeup. But she still, she looked so gorgeous and she was in her little lavender pantsuit and I'll never forget her taking her, us around the museum. You danced for her too, Dirty. Yeah, so it was the original Exotic World stage with the lettering Exotic World at the top, of you know, over top and a wrought iron giant sign that's in the museum now on um, Main Street in Vegas. Still there. I mean, so preserved for for the future generations which is wonderful at the burlesque hall of fame in vegas but it, back in those days i was like oh my god look at this exciting stage <laughs> and i danced i made sure i danced there was no music because charlie uh jenny lee's husband who was a cowboy star who was running the ranch he had no way. At first, I tried to perform in the Hall of Fame, which was an old barn. They couldn't get the sound going. So I said, oh, well, just film me, you know, on the original stage, dancing around, and we'll sing. <laughs> and that's how I performed for Dixie. And she was like, oh, honey, you're so beautiful. It's just like the old days. And it just it meant so much to me to hear that. And then I talked to her about actual burlesque dance steps after that and what um, she thought about how they were uh, handed down throughout the burlesque and how how the burlesque choreography actually happened. And she told me firsthand. <laughs> and she said this story. Okay, so one story and then I'll let Bob take over about going there together. But um, she told me this story. She said, oh, honey, you know, if the some of the girls wouldn't let you uh, watch them from the wings because they were afraid they'd steal your choreography. Um, but some girls did. And I'll tell you this, if you were a headliner and you stole their choreography, you better you better not do it when she was still in town. Because <laughs> they would get into fist fights. It was like, you know, like you've heard this stuff about how burlesque dancers say, oh, I, that's my act. I do the goose act or whatever right. it is. <laughs> <laughs> that's my flower act. <laughs> well, it was like that then too, except that a lot of um, livelihoods were on the line and in a bit more of a desperate way. So, so you would not want to be in town if you stole somebody's choreography. Right. But she said that the choreography was a sort of social dance of the time, kind of like the Lindy Hop and all that stuff. And it was, they would just do what they did, social dancing, but they did it on the stage. And sometimes there were choreographers too, but 
the first time I met Dixie was 2001, right? Teaserama, Howling Wolf in New Orleans, the first burlesque festival that happened. People flew from Australia. People came from all over the world. And it was so incredible because I met people there that were doing stuff in New York City that I had never met before, like the world famous Pontiani sisters. I thought, oh, I've heard of you. I've heard of you you guys. And, you know, it's so nice to finally meet you. We had to go to New Orleans to meet. And it was just incredible because it wasn't, there was no internet as far as, I mean, there was, there was internet, but nobody used it, you know? So it wasn't like it is now where you can see tons of performers all the time. So it was really the first time that a lot of us were in the same room together and realizing how large burlesque had become in this neo wave, not realizing really how big of a deal it had become. And I remember I had Cookie Puss lip paint on and Cookie Puss was this great brand. Remember Dirty? They had the red glitter paint that you put on your lips mm-hmm. and your lips looked just like Dorothy's shoes. And this was back when there wasn't Nick's makeup. There wasn't a lot of drag makeup out there. I mean, it was a big deal if you could get certain shades. People would hunt you down and be like, where'd you get that Dayglo girl? You know, where'd you get mm-hmm. that Dayglo pink? And it was like, oh, it's NARS and it's $20 and it's Scaparelli. And it was like a big deal to have unique shades. And I'm glad it's more accessible now, but I have that on. And I remember walking up to Dixie and meeting her and realizing about two minutes into the conversation, if that, that she didn't have a chair and I was appalled. So I went up to the bar and I asked some young fella, I said, you, you wouldn't mind giving up your chair for Dixie Evans, would you? And he said, of course not. So I carried in my gown this chair over to her and offered her a seat. And she just kept talking about my lipstick. She said, oh, that's so beautiful. She was mesmerized. And later that evening, um, so Vava Voom Room, we went there as a group. And that was Dirty, myself, Julie, and Kate. And we did Mm -hmm. group acts and we um, rented a house. So we stayed together as a group. And Tigger came and Kate's boyfriend at the time. But I think that was really it, right? Yeah. Yeah. And we rented we rented a van and we did Polaroids, topless Polaroids after the Vava Boom Room to raise money for matching outfits and gas money. And <laughs> we just really scraped everything together to be a part of this as a, as a, not a troupe, but as a show, as people who perform together. And we did group numbers and then we did solo numbers as well. And somebody came up to me, they were auctioning off one of Gypsy Rose Lee's gowns to benefit Exotic World Museum. And they walked up to me and said, Bob, would you like to stand next to Dixie during the auction on stage and hold up the gown? And I lost my mind. Like, I couldn't believe what an honor it is. And Lisa Crezzi took a great photo of that moment. I'm holding my martini glass because I had to, you know, keep it for my act. And I'm holding the gown and I'm next to Dixie. And I just felt a real connection to Dixie right away. And the first time I went to Exotic World, I brought Mae Western, my cowgirl act, And to be out there with Dirty and to be out there with everyone and to see this, it it was a spiritual pilgrimage. It was not easy place to get to. It was not an easy place to find out about. There was a collective consciousness that once you were on that property, whether you were, you know, a waitress from the nearest town at the Mexican food restaurant who came out because Dixie told you to stop by or whether you were one of the Hell's Angels that came to watch the girls or whether you were one of the 
burlesque dancers, there was a real, there was a thread that strung you all together. It wasn't like, oh, I'm going to go to that too. It was like, what did you go to? Where? How do you get there? You know, it was this real hidden gem, if you will. And I I just remember Dixie, you know, I I was um, dating someone at the time and I went out with them and we were driving and we got there really late. And, you know, as Dirty's talked about the wild road and going through the black wrought iron arches that say exotic world and driving into that gravel driveway, which, you know, is always my analogy of home. It's like dirt and rocks mixed together and seeing that little sign crooked hanging on a nail honk three times for a tour and doing that and being so apologetic, calling her, going to a pay phone and calling her and apologizing for being so late. And this is the day before the pageant. She goes, Oh, it's all right. I just put on a pot of coffee for the band. You know, she's just like, I'm exhausted. I'm like, I need nine hours, girl, and some cucumber slices. This desert air is killing me. And she's just like ready to go. Right. <laughs> Meanwhile, uh, the band is Fisherman's Famous Burlesque with Kitten on the Keys as the main performer. And like, it, the lineup was insane of like people all over the country coming out to make this pilgrimage and help Dixie out too. A lot of people were helping her organize it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it was really incredible. I didn't realize, you know, what I was stepping into and she gave me the tour. And for me, the, the, one of the most interesting parts of the tour is the first room that she would take you into was the eight by 10 room. And it was ceiling to floor eight by tens. And that's where the beautiful wooden donation box was. She was very not aggressive about asking people for money, but there was a donation box. And I'm looking around and she's showing me all these stars. And she said, oh, well, you know, I'm the Marilyn Monroe of burlesque. And this is the Sophia Loren of burlesque. And she's just showing me all these shadow nude reflections of current, at that time, famous stars. And I looked at her and I said, so you were all female, female impersonators. And she goes, yes. And I had never, you know, I identify as non-binary now. I didn't have language then. There's been a lot of new language that's really helped me be able to not be confused by my own existence, but being assigned female at birth by somebody else and being in the drag community was always very isolating in a way. And so to have this connection, I just felt like I had walked into a room of my ancestors and ancestors. you know, like I wasn't this weirdo on an island you know, I'd be backstage at a burlesque show and I'd be like, but I'm a drag queen. I'm not a girl. Not that you have to be um, any gender to be a drag queen or a burlesque dancer, but 20 years ago you did, you know? And there's a lot of misogyny there too. So there's that. (laughs) I'd be at a drag, you know, I'd be working in a nightclub in San Francisco, working the VIP door, established as a club personality. Somebody would walk up to me with a can of Lysol and spray my crotch. So I've been there, right? And then I've been at the burlesque show feeling like, you know, oh, I'm actually not what they think I am. I hope I'm not, you know, pulling one over on them. That's not my intention, you know. So to have this connection to an art form just made me really feel like I wasn't floating on my own anymore. And she takes, she took me through the museum and, you know, she showed me Sherry Champagne's ashes from the museum and Jane Mansfield's heart-shaped ottoman and Gypsy Rose Lee's trunk and, 
Lace Star's beautiful dress. And then we get to the end and Sally Rand, her fans from the 1933 Chicago World's Fair in a glass case. And there's water stains on the walls and it's not air conditioned and nothing's nothing's going to last for long in these conditions. You know, it's an old goat ranch that she converted. And we get to the end and I'm just crying. I'm just crying. And I looked at her and I said, thank you so much for keeping it alive. And she would never take credit. She would always hold up the mirror when you thanked her. And she'd say, oh, it's you girls that are making it a big deal. And then she would mime my boobs and go, and I mean a big deal. (laughs) (laughs) She'd take you through the wall of tears, but she would never leave you there. She'd crack a joke and she would always deflect the credit, always. And I met Magic who was Jenny Lee's horse that lived there at the time and Snowball, Jenny Lee's cat that lived on the roof. And Jenny Lee, Jordy always reminds me of Jenny Lee and Dixie would say the same thing. I felt such a connection to Dixie. And in a way I dared to think of Dirty and I as the Jenny and Dixie now, right? I was like, I want to be like Dixie. I want to bring people together. I want to inspire people. I want to preserve the history. I want to, you know, and Dixie was a huge star in her own right. The dancing part, I was like, yeah, Counts of Eight aren't my thing. But, you know, Dixie's spirit around burlesque. And Jenny was such such a source of, you know, boisterous joy and sexuality and charisma and dance and also interested in connecting the community. So I kind of just in my head was like, yeah, Dick, I want to be Dixie and then Dirty could be Jenny. And the next day was the pageant and people were turning in cassettes just to let you know where the tech was at that point. (laughs) And you just signed up. If you were there, you could sign up. There was no application. If you got there, they put you on stage. It'd be like 52. I think there were 52 people that performed the, the year in 2004 when I won Miss Exotic World. There were 52 or 54 people that performed and all really unique and all from different places and different backgrounds. And it was like the burgeoning of the new burlesque kind of just starting out. So mm-hmm. there was some retro ones and there were some strippers and there were some feature headliners from the strip clubs. And it was just so bananas. And then there was that woman, Boobarella. Do you remember her? Yes. With yes. the boob car? Yeah. <laughs> like total freakazoid. I loved her. She was yeah. so amazing. It was so great. We didn't have any lights. There were no lights there. So we had to start at noon. When the sun went down, the show was over. Yeah. And then the high winds, it was like so hot out in the desert. It's outside. So hot out in the desert that it's like everything was baking and full of dust. And then at like 5 p.m. when the heat waned finally after being like so hot you could die. Then the high winds started (laughs) for the rest of the show. (laughs) So it was really challenging. So it wasn't until uh, we started holding events and and she, uh, Dixie started holding events and, uh, and made it more of a weekend uh, because this holiday Inn and Barstow uh, opened up. It was brand new and they were so nice. Mm -hmm. And the people that were helping Dixie to organize the events um, really latched onto this Barstow Holiday Inn. And they gave us their conventions there. I mean, it, could, it had to have been so inexpensive. It's like, where's Barstow? It's like near an army base. That's about all that's going on there. 
So that's when it was a little bit easier for the legends of burlesque to start performing and have their own night because normally they were just kind of uh, women who were either had tap troops or dance troops in in and around the area, and then Tempest Storm would perform. <laughs> And then you'd be like, holy shit. It was crazy. <laughs> <Get the> storm. <laughs> but then later on, more uh, women of the 50s generation and 40s generation started joining in. And we got Satan's Angel and we got Ricky Cobet and we got um, all these women that at first, they it, it was always like this where they would say, oh, I don't really want to perform. I'll just come up and say something, right? And then they'd come up on the stage and they'd start and they'd talk and then they'd be like, and then they'd shake their titties and then they'd start unbuttoning their cute little lady blouses. (laughs) And then the crowd would go bananas for them. And so they'd take off a little bit more and they'd be down and they're like, you know, your, your panties that you aren't ready to show people, they're not costumes. They're like your panties you wore to the convention. You know what I mean? Right. (laughs) (laughs) And that's how it would start. And then the next year they would come back ready, girl. They had their costume panties. They, you know, they were ready to entertain. And that was so exciting. Hidden Natividad and Paula, the Swedish housewife were the ones that formalized the legends night. Yes. And asked people, and they went to Dixie, and Dixie was like, oh, I don't know. You know, Dixie was on the fence about it, to be honest. Um, was like, I don't know. I don't think that's why people come. <laughs> and Dixie loved having the legends there to sign books and meet people, but she didn't know how it would go over the show, you know. And so I think she just wanted somebody to, like, make sure it went over well. And that's when Kid and Natividad and Paula, the Swedish housewife, had a conversation, and then Paula started producing it. And she had a lot of producer experience. So then it turned into this really great thing. Yeah, Paula was instrumental Huge. in not only creating the Legends Night, but um, because of her love and, and Laura Herbert's love of the legends and those women, that's why we call them legends now. And that's why we have yeah. that adoration of the older generation of performers because, I mean, honestly, Bob and I went out there in search of the grandmothers we didn't have. I mean, I don't know about you, but like my grandma, she was cool and all. And when I barely knew her, I'm both my grandmas on both sides. I really liked them, but I didn't really know them. And they didn't really want to know me that much either. So to come and meet women that were more like me and, you know, actually the me that I wanted to be. <laughs> And I was like, whoa, it's like your brain exploding mm-hmm. when you finally get to meet your real grandma. <laughs> Remember, Judy, every time I'd go, I'd just be crying. I was such a mess. Like I was either posing for photos or like in the corner crying, <laughs> trying not to get my makeup ruined. And I remember every time I had to go, that was really hard. Like every time I had to leave. I would get in the car of whoever was driving me and I'd turn around and Dixie would be waving and I'd just have this huge lump in my throat. And it was so hard. It was so hard to leave her from day one. It wasn't like this developed over years of knowing her. There was a connection and a love and an acceptance she gave me that I didn't feel from anybody else. 
you know, in a, in a paternal way or, or a maternal way. I, it, it was just indescribable. And it was like, my heart was breaking every time I had to leave. It was very emotional. It just, just like the Vava Boom Room gave me my family and gave me dirty. Dixie gave me home, like another sense of home. You know, how like you have your city home with your friends. That was the Vava Boom Room. And like the home people talk about going back to for the holidays and stuff. That felt like exotic world where Dixie was. And I left home at 15 and a half. So I didn't have, I was, I've spent my entire life seeking out and creating family and you know, building home. So to me, home isn't a location more than it is a feeling that somebody gives me. And so it felt like my, you know, the home I would go back to for the holidays. That's how it felt when I would go see Dixie. My last conversation that I had with Dixie on the phone quite some time ago now, she, I said to her, I feel like you're my, the, my grandmother of burlesque and for all of us, though, not just me, just the entire world. Yeah. And she corrected me. She said, well, Dita Von Teese calls me the fairy godmother of burlesque. <laughs> <laughs> and I was like, fair enough. <laughs> That's what you will be. So she is forever the fairy godmother of burlesque. Yeah. Absolutely. This is such a beautiful story. And I think what I love is obviously, right? Like the point of this was to get your like BFF story and everything, but this all just ties so deliciously in how much burlesque has changed your lives, right? And given you, I guess, a connection to something bigger and beyond, you know, beyond you, beyond you as a duo, like beyond, you know, your quad in the va-va-room room, like all of that. Thank you for sharing all of this. Thank you for asking. Oh my gosh, of course. I mean, strangely for being such an extrovert, I'm very um, shy. And so to call somebody on the phone, I'm sure you're the same this way, Bob, too. It takes a lot of courage for me to get on the phone. It always did, even before. I always loved cell phones because when cell phones came around, I was like, good, now I can't procrastinate this call. I can just walk down the street and not put it off because I'm scared to make that call. And mm-hmm. I'm that way, like, I, it's really hard for me to call someone, you know, unless I know them like super duper duper well, but like a new, a new person to call, ugh, it's scary to me. Mm-hmm. So it, it made it special to be able to call Dixie and, you know, I, I was procrastinated that too. And I feel bad about it. And, but, you know, then I have people like Bob in my life saying, Call your grandmas. <laughs> <laughs> she loves you. Dixie loves you so much, Dirty. She well, loved I feel that way about Marinka yeah. and Georgette and yeah. God Satan's Angel. And, you know, they are my family in, in a way. You no. Know? Bambi Senior. Yep. April, March. My God. It's like, yeah, I don't call them as much as I should or at all. But that's only because I'm a super shy person. <laughs> postcards are fun. Send them postcards. They love getting postcards from other countries. They love seeing that this fire spreading, you know, this sexy fire is spreading all over the world that they started. 
postcards so quick and easy and you just have the international stamps in your wallet. So there's no excuse and you just do it that way. Dixie loved getting your postcards and letters. I used to write her, if I ever went to a hotel that had super fancy stationery, I'd always write her a letter from it, (laughs) no matter where it was. And the last one was in um, Norway. And it had this gorgeous stationery and I wrote on it, it was her le- the last letter I sent to her and it said, can I please be on the board of Burlesque Hall of Fame? I know that things at that time were a little tenuous and I wanted to ask her permission and I never actually got her permission, but I'm still on the Burlesque, board of, the Burlesque Hall Board of Fame. <laughs> I, I'm but sure. I, I feel like it's important, like she would look down and say, yeah, that's appropriate. Yeah. Yeah, so, I agree. So too. even though I never got her letter back, <laughs> I think it's unanimous. I'm just going to speak for Dixie. You're good, <laughs> right? I also I want to share like a travel story because I had the joy of touring with Dirty, and also there was a time period when Dirty, myself, and Julie Atlas Muse got to do traveling together, and that was so fun. It was so fun. And I used to call us the Blonde Trilogy of Burlesque. <laughs> the Triumvirate. <laughs> yeah. And I remember um, Movie Star, my first poodle daughter, the queen of the toy poodles. We got, um, so I'll let Dixie's, oh, Dixie, I just called you Dixie. Dirty. <laughs> oh my gosh. I'll let Dirty tell you because it was her friends, but Julie, myself and Dirty got brought to Salt Lake City to do a burlesque show with D Milo. And then I have some fun, like sightseeing stories, but why don't you tell them how that show came about? Oh my God. D Milo, the goddess of burlesque. She is the most beautiful woman in the entire world. The Venus of dance. The Venus of dance. Yes, that's right. And she had, a, you know, she has her story. She has her cute little story about how, you know, she relates to burlesque and um, I knew she was out in Salt Lake City and my friend Roger had a theater company out there and it was a gay theater company. And so they had a lot of trouble out there in Salt Lake City, but he did his best trying to fundraise, trying to um, keep it afloat. You know, he's an amazing creative person, Roger Bennington. So he was doing a fundraiser for his theater company and he asked me and Bob and Julie to come out and do it and perform. And I said, well, you're in Salt Lake City. You need to get D Milo to perform and get the newspapers in on it too. And they're going to go bananas because she's the Venus of dance. And Roger lost his mind. He like He called her up. And got to meet her for the first time. And she's just such a dynamic, wonderful woman that, you know, he just, he lost it. He was like, I'm in. <laughs> and she performed her um, traveling uh, lady on a train burlesque number. Romantic journey. Sentimental journey. Yeah. Sentimental mm-hmm. journey. Where she has her suitcase and she's ready to go on a train. And it's like, oh God, the cutest number you ever saw. Oh, she was so gorgeous. And so we all got to go out there and perform. And I got to be, because Roger's partner made me a giant moon. And it was my first burlesque prop I ever got to. And it was like 15 feet up in the air. And I'm scared of heights. I didn't think about that at the time. (laughs) 
So they had to make a special railing for me so I could white knuckle it <laughs> 15 feet in the air on a giant platform. That's how scared of heights I am. <laughs> and walk down a staircase. It was incredible. Our last number in a giant moon. It was so beautiful and all glittery and silver. Ugh. Dirty came down from the sky on a moon, like a <laughs> crescent moon, and she was lounging in it. It was unbelievable. Like we had not seen any producers go to these lengths yet. You know, people didn't have the money, I guess, or the space. Salt Lake City's more spacious than New York, of course. Right. It was so beautiful. And there's a live band. And you know how they have those things under the stage so the band can come up? Yeah. You know, um, in Salt Lake City, when we went out sightseeing, they have these buckets on the street corners. Remember, Dirty, with the big orange flags in them? And you oh, take yeah. a flag and you wave it while you cross the street so that you don't get hit. And I'm really into safety. And as we mentioned earlier with the Carol Channing Parade and the Wooden Spoons, I'm really into parades. So <laughs> I, everywhere we went, I freaked out about these flags and I stole one. I stole one. I love it. And so as the band is coming up from underneath the stage, you just see a tip of the orange flag waving and like as, as I'm revealed, you know, I'm doing the, so it was a really great place for, to source humor. It was such a beautiful show. Dirty. It just blew me away to see her come down from the moon. Right. Wow. Okay. When I asked for like a delicious, funny, um, tour story, I was not expecting something in Salt Lake city and I love it. This was fun. Oh, well, there was a time when Bob came to visit me in Nantes, France, and performed with the Cabaret New Burlesque. That was fancy. That was fun. And you met me on the train platform with um, a baguette, and you ran towards me with this comically long baguette. And as I met you, I broke off a piece and started eating it. Yeah. And I was like, wait to taste the butter. <laughs> because in that part of France, when we were in Western France, that's oh. where Nantes is. They have this butter that is like, it's not like rock salt. It's like fleur de sel, which is like um, the little balls that happen naturally when you, ha- when sea salt gets scraped up out of the dish or whatever. Like, I don't even, you know, I know how they make it, but it's like, but it's so fine, but it's chunky at the same time. And it's embedded in their butter. And it is the most delicious butter you've ever had in your entire life. It's like the cows (laughs) just ate only sea dew moistened grass. They're like, no, that's not good enough for us. And they would only eat that. And that's what the Butter tasted like I was convinced I could make a million dollars coming back to New York selling it on a stick. Um, <laughs> butter on oh, I'm sure you can. <laughs> yeah. I was in Paris doing a party with Suzanne Barsh and Kenny Kenny and all them called at this model party during Fashion Week called Don't Tell My Booker. That was the name of the party. And Ryan Seacrest was there. He was so nice. He's really, really short. He was very nice. And uh <laughs> He was talking to Johanna Constantine, who's a DJ, and he was like really impressed with her and like super like super nerding out on her. It was cute. And then Dirty talked to the producer of that show that she was doing and you know convinced her to let me come down and do a number in the show. So it was a fun extension of my trip. It was really good. And she wore a cute little like a French poodle um 50s skirt. And a little gingham top. She looks so cute getting off the train from Paris because, you know, it's you take a train from Paris. It's kind of scary to do that all by yourself, you know, in, in a foreign country. But she did it. And I met her at that 
train station. And then my little apartment was so <gasps> beautiful. It had these big French doors that opened up and they were glass and it opened into this really shishi's uh, shopping street. And so Bob immediately freaked out and ran to the windows and said, Ego waste. <laughs> I started doing this Chanel commercial <laughs> with a perfume where she flings open the French doors and goes, Ego waste. But I'm like, I had those it. curtains too, those like filmy white curtains that were blowing out gently in the wind. <laughs> this is so romantic. Dirty is fancy. <laughs> Obviously, the two of you have had very, very long burlesque careers that are still still happening and you've both you know have been such influential figures in you know my generation's experience of burlesque so many people look up to you and you know in our beautiful conversation here today obviously you two have witnessed each other's careers uh, very intimately throughout the years can you tell me bob what is you know the biggest win that you've seen of Dirty's? Like, what's a moment that you're really proud of that you want to share? And Dirty, I have the same question for you, for Bob. There's so many, but it was 2004 when she won Miss Exotic World. And I had the, the honor of knowing Dirty's backstory with her ballet career and teachers that were less than encouraging, and that's being polite. And when she came out there and she danced, it was as if the ghost of Mae West had stepped inside her. It was transformational. She completely transported the entire audience to a time and place that wasn't matched in reality. And every time she would bump one of her hips to the right or the left, I just saw all these ghosts of the teachers telling her she wasn't good enough, falling over like bowling pins, you know? (laughs) And I I just saw all these people who had doubted her just turning into piles of dust behind her while she just swept the floor, swept the floor with her talent. And it was so incredible. Everyone was on their feet during her act. By the end of it, everyone was on their feet screaming, unanimous standing ovation. I had tears going down my cheeks. I was screaming. I almost lost my voice. That's my girl. That's my girl. Like I was just so proud of her. And so excited for the rest of the world to start to see what I already knew she was, you know, and she won and it was, we're all lined up and they go to announce the Miss Exotic World. They go to announce it. And of course it's nerve wracking and everybody's nervous and, you know, it's not as well known. So these are people that it, it, I'm not saying it doesn't mean a lot now, but it meant so much that you, you know, you had to go through so much to even be there, not to get in. You just showed up, but just showing up there was such a journey that it was very heartfelt. The people who were up on that stage and Dirty's the only time I've seen them announce a winner and just instantly every person that she was competing, I'm doing air quotes because I wasn't competing against anyone. Every person that was up trying to, you know, get that title, dropped their knees and bowed to her at the same time. It was an obvious audience choice, but it was also her peers' choice that she represent us and be the queen. And for me, it was just such a beautiful moment in our friendship that I got to witness that success for her. And watching Dixie react 
to Dirty's performance, watching everyone see what burlesque could be. And the people she was in competition with also just being so excited that she was our queen. And I got second runner up that year. Penny Star Jr. got first runner up and it was really exciting. <laughs> I always joke. Thanks, Hesper. I always joke. Um, you know, there was just a lot of like 52 and I couldn't believe that I placed it all. I just, I never thought that would happen, but it was exciting in that way too, because I had done my tribute to Dixie. So I did the special thing that Dixie got to watch. And then I also placed with it, which I wasn't competitive, but it just felt so nice to hold something that Dixie bought. She used to go shopping for the trophies herself then. And so it was really nice. And I remember that moment, Dirty, when we were, so everybody's all over Dirty because that's what happens, you know, the press and people and stuff. And there were these two like little rickety lawn chairs and the sun was setting in. For some reason we had been able, we were just there away from the crowd sitting together, holding hands, watching the sunset. And it wasn't long. It was just a few moments. And she had her Sally Rand twirling or no, our fan dance trophy that year as well. Right. So you had like two trophies and I had my little trophy and we're holding hands and the sun was just going down behind the exotic world arch above the stage. And I just remember feeling like this is the moment that I'm going to, you know, people talk about their deathbeds and going through the scenes of their lives that that you know, I feel like my life is an art direction and a curation of moments of beauty, love, and magic that I want to relive as I slip out of my body. And in that moment, I was like, this is, this is one of the best moments of my life was watching her have this. That's beautiful. Okay. We're going to let that sink in. I have the chills. I can see it. What a, oh, it was, it was beautiful. Can I say something too? Like, we're going to remember this forever or so, you know, I like to do that in the moment. You did like, too. This- you were like, okay, wait, stop sunsetting. And I was like, oh. <laughs> and then, she, you know, they all ran. And no, it was food. so beautiful. And we were, you know, and then we got to go to Mexican food after, which is <laughs> my favorite part because it was so hungry. <laughs> so good. And a f- such a fun little like camaraderie after too, even with the sun setting and then us all driving off to the Mexican restaurant. <laughs> I remember Tempest would walk by and the whole table would just stop talking and look at her. It still happens. <laughs> I'm still like that. <laughs> so for, for me, the answer to that question, well, I've known Bob a long time now. And you know that because we've been talking for a long time now. (laughs) Bob, and I'm not shitting you, is not only the most beautiful woman in the world with the highest cheekbones and the most photogenic person, but also one of the smartest, wittiest people I've ever met. And she's so succinct the way she speaks. I mean, you know this because of the storytelling that she often does and the emceeing that I'm so privileged to see her do all the time because we get to do big shows together and I get to see her emcee the whole night long. And it's so fun to watch her work a crowd and to um, just see her brain work. So, so quick. She's so quick. So for me, the most um, proudest moment of her that I've ever been is to watch her Uh, her education 
catch up with how smart she is. And she's made it a point in her life to continue her education no matter what. Like, and I'm not just talking about schooling, like schooling, schooling, but going to classes and, you know, broadening her horizons through classes and through learning from people is something that she's always done in her life. But to actually have the degrees and to be approaching the degrees and have to watch her work so fucking hard to learn math at our age. You know, I mean, like math was hard for me when I was like 14, you know, like, and my brain cells were still firing properly. (laughs) But like, imagine algebra at this time in my life, like I could, to watch her flying to Russia doing her math homework and complaining how much math homework she had to do in order to graduate and to actually see her not only graduate and then go to college and then continue her learning process, but then get her dream job in New York City working with gay seniors, elders, pardon me, at SAGE and to set SAGE on fire with her her just passion for what she does. And she didn't even just sort of walk into Sage and be like, I'll be an administrator. She brought her A-game passion. And to watch her with a lot of scary, scary people, (laughs) not everybody was her fan when she walked into Sage, which is different from the backstage. (laughs) Because walking into a backstage, we're all her fans already. But to walk into Sage and have these people who were automatically against her and to watch her turn them around and get them on, not only not only get them to like deal with her, but to get them on her side, that to me was like the most amazing thing I've ever seen a human being do in my life. Thank you, Dirty. I mean, that's beyond, that's beyond the, okay, so we're already talking about she conquered nightlife. She was really famous in New York in nightlife when I even moved here. She was doing every goddamn like photo shoot known to man. <laughs> like she was in like what's that cool magazine Bust? She did like a six-page spread in Bust. She was like in all these gorgeous magazines with these insane sh- pinup shoots. I don't know. So for me, like I've seen her conquer the world before, but to see her do that on her own terms was something that meant a lot to her. That that was for me the most amazing thing I've ever seen anybody in my life do. Thank you so much, Dirty. It was scary. I could walk through Times Square naked, but studying to get my diploma, my high school diploma at 40 was terrifying. I think a lot of times when we're afraid of something, we find other ways to compensate, right? And so being the life of the party was my way to compensate for actually not feeling smart in a weird way. And um, I just convinced myself it didn't matter. That piece of paper doesn't matter. But if you're still saying that 20 years later, it probably does, right? (laughs) So (laughs) it was one of the scariest things I ever did. So thank you, Dirty. Oh, that's so beautiful. Both stories, both like, you know, wins that you're celebrating, all these wins two incredibly accomplished figures in our industry. I love you both so much. As your careers and lives have evolved, how do y'all show each other love and support? 
now. I mean, I just feel like Dirty's with me wherever I go. I feel like if I don't see Dirty for a year because she's traveling the world, the next time I see her talk to her, it's like we saw each other yesterday. It's that that bond is just there. And it's it's one of those relationships. You know, when it, before I moved to Austin, I would get upset because I missed all my New York City friends and I lived in New York City. You know, life would take us in different directions. And I always joke, we used to do every show together and then we got so good, nobody could afford to have more than one of us in a show, which was this awesome thing that actually did start happening. But then our time together was less and less. And uh, I tell people being best friends with Dirty Martini means you share her with the world. You know, it's not, it's not this like, this is my best friend and I'm her best friend and that's it. It's just like, it, you can't hold in this beautiful light that radiates through the universe, but having access to that light everywhere you go, that's how I feel about my friendship with Dirty. And I know she knows me. She knows who I am and she accepts me for who I am and we're family. And so I think the way I show support is I just make an effort to stay in touch, you know, and when we do regroup or when we do reconnect, whether it's it's usually through a phone call, but sometimes it's in person. I just bring my truth to her. You know, people say, oh yeah, things are good. If things aren't good, I tell her things aren't good, but I just bring my truth to her. That way our relationship stays based on reality. Yeah. Friendships. You know, there's no like school about how to run a friendship, you know? (laughs) And I think it's so funny because you really navigate as you grow older ebbs and flows in relationships. And in New York, it's so bananas, crazy, just trying to run around and make a living that you could, I mean, the time that Bob is in New York, I would make a concerted effort to come out to her, wherever, to her Brooklyn house. And she would come to my place when she was stopping by in Manhattan. We'd go for coffee and stuff like that. But it doesn't feel so once you're here in New York, we think, oh, we're only a few miles from each other. So just those, like, seeing her, like, once every three months or something to go, you know, oh, let's go do this thing together. It didn't feel like we were really seeing each other that much, mm-hmm. you know, because you're just like, we should be seeing each other every day. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so it's just so funny the way you frame your relationships with people and to make a concerted effort to like go to where they live. And they remember the time I moved you from Williamsburg to, um, to your place, your beautiful place, your first real home, mm-hmm. you know, with a bunch of other friends and, you know, packing up her gay son's place after he passed away. And, you know, these are the things that you don't get back and to show up for somebody to do stuff like that, you know, And I think it's hard for people to ask for people to show up for them in that way too. But I feel like having gone through all those things with Bob and now that she's in Austin and we don't see each other every three months, (laughs) it doesn't feel much different, I have to say. No, no. Because I know she's there for me if I need her and vice versa, I hope. (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. I feel that way too. And living in a different state, it makes sense in my brain that I don't see the people in New York City I love every day. Sequinette is 
uh, my drag sister from another mister. And she took over my upstairs apartment when I moved into the ground floor. And I remember thinking just because I got her a space in the building, like that meant I was going to see her every day. And that's just not even in the same building. You don't have that luxury because New York City is such such a game show that you have to go on every day just to survive, you know? But yeah, Dirty's been there for me in moments where... The demanding mistress, New York City. (laughs) She's bossy. (laughs) And like, for example, when Dixie passed away, Dirty and I and Dr. Lucky, we just got on the phone. Like we flew out there to, you know, and we shared a room and there are moments in life that are serious enough that, you know, you have to be in person for, and no matter where we are, that, you know, that's hap- that's happened in me and Dirty's relationship. So. World famous Bob, Dirty Martini. Thank you so much for being on this episode of the Pacey Tapes and sharing your love and your stories and all of this deliciousness and so many laughs and so many insights. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Um, do you have anything that you want to plug or give shout outs to or tell us where you, we can find you on the internet? I just want to thank you for bringing us together. I've been really looking forward to this um, since we planned this date. And I'm so glad that Bob and I were able to do it together and that it's with you. Thank you so much for your beautiful presence in the world. And if anybody oh, yeah. wants to know what's going on in this crazy lockdown bizarro world that we may never ever perform again in our lives <laughs> uh check me out on instagram at dirty martini nyc yeah i also want to echo that show my i'm so excited to not only have this time with dirty so thank you dirty but i'm also so excited to have this time with you show my and to share you both are my family. Just so to have this hangout together means a lot to me. And to also have you as my daughter in the house of famous, where our motto and hashtag as nice as the new fierce is such a joy to see you sitting at the table of my family. And I, I'm also on Instagram. If you really love poodles, (laughs) I mean, if you really love poodles and um, poodles, and pink stuff. You can find me at World Famous Bob on Instagram, the World Famous Bob. But also, I'm hoping to see each and every person as soon as the Burlesque Hall of Fame Weekender is up and running. I'm hoping to see all of your beautiful faces filling those red velvet seats at the Orleans Casino. Uh, the museum does need help. And I really look forward to just bringing out the legends and honoring the past as we continue to create the future of this beautiful art form. So I hope to see you at a festival, specifically the Living Legends Titans of Teas showcase in Las Vegas, Nevada. Be there or answer to me. <laughs> yes, don't miss that show. Don't cry. miss that show. If you go for the weekend, you can... mm. I got people taking names. <laughs> They'll punch you in the face if they see your moves later. <laughs> I'm going to replace your sugar with salt and that coffee's going to be gross. Bob and Dirty Martini, thank you so much again for being on this episode of the Facey Tapes. I'll let you enjoy the rest of your day. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks again, Bob and Dirty. 
I love Bob and Dirty Martini so, so, so much. And I hope that you've fallen in love with them a little more now too. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of The Pasty Tapes. To find more information, to find more episodes, and to join the fan club, visit thepastytapes.com. You can also follow the podcast on Instagram at thepastytapes. I'm still giving away stickers, so find that Instagram post for instructions on how to get your freebie. I'm your host, Show My More, the steamiest Asian dumpling, recording today in Chicago, and you can find me across the internet at Show My More. Thank you again, and I will talk with you soon. This episode of the Pacey Tapes was brought to you with the support from listeners like you. If you want to join the Pacey Tapes fan club, support this podcast, unlock some sneak peeks behind the scenes, and get some fun goodies in the mail, visit thepaceytapes.com to join the fan club now. So, so, so much love to Pacey Tapes fan club members Kyle H., the man with the hat, Violet Passion, and Teresa. Extra shout-outs to Big Moody Judy, Amethyst Howell, Betty Beware, Aria Delanoche, CC Bombay, Fufu Kaboom, Faye Havoc, Kitty LaRoyal, Kinetic Kristen, Kitson Sass, Madame Ophelia Red, Rosalie Bloom, Tony Tabasco, and Frisky Business. Again, if you want to join the Pacey Tapes fan club, visit thepaceytapes.com.